0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host, Stuart Blues, and this is the second and final episode of a two part special focusing on the life and crimes of necrophilic Scottish serial killer Dennis Nilsson. Last week, in part one, I discussed Dennis's early life and background until his arrest. If you haven't already, please go back and give that episode a listen, as it will provide some background and much-needed context for this second episode. This week, in Part 2, I will discuss Dennis's murderous timeline, whilst providing backgrounds on each of the unfortunate men whose lives were taken away by the man who would be forever known as the Muswell Hill murderer. Before we get there, though, let's break the ice a little bit, as we always do, on British murders, The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. This week's Dad Fact is... Will Smith, very popular content at the moment, Will Smith turned down the lead role of Neo in The Matrix to film Wild Wild West. I know which film of those two I prefer, although I did see Wild Wild West at the cinema. The second and final opening icebreaker segment is this. Tatsuji haiku. Here is this week's haiku. It was written by a listener of the show, Jay Barnes. It's British murders, Stuart Blues, a Yorkshire bloke, but that's not his fault. <laughs> it feels weird reading out a haiku based on me. Thanks for sending that in, Jay. He's quite a funny guy, is Jay. A haiku is a Japanese poem made up of 17 syllables in three lines of five, seven, and five. It's also meant to be read in one breath. And if you'd like one of your haikus to be read on a future episode, please send your efforts to me at britishmurders.com, DM me on social media, all that good stuff. And with the ice now well and truly broken, let's get down to business. As I mentioned last week, this high-profile case was suggested by listener Kat Luth, and the themes discussed throughout this two-part special are serial murder, necrophilia, and dismemberment. Continue listening, as always, at your discretion. Our timeline this week starts on December 29, 1978. A young teenager named Stephen Dean Holmes had just attended a concert in Wilsdon, northwest London, and decided to stop off at a pub before he made his way home to Kilburn, also in northwest London. Born on March 22nd, 1964 in Ireland, Stephen was only 14 years old at the time, four years too young to be able to purchase alcohol in the UK legally. The pub he called in at was the Cricklewood Arms, a place Dennis Nilsson was considered a regular. After being refused alcohol by the bar staff due to being underage, Stephen was approached by Dennis, who offered to purchase the youngster a drink. He then invited Stephen back to his home on Melrose Avenue, and he plied him with an excessive amount of alcohol, which led to the inexperienced drinker falling asleep. That was when Dennis made his move. Selecting a necktie from his extensive collection, Dennis placed it around Stephen's neck and pulled it as tightly as he could until the young Irish boy was unconscious. Dennis then filled a bucket with water and held poor Stephen's head in it until he died. Depending on which sauce you use, Stephen was killed either in the late evening of December 29, 1978 or the early morning of December 30th 1978. Dennis claimed they had both fallen asleep, and upon wakening, Stephen was dead on the floor. Dennis later said, My tie was round his neck. I think I started off with about 14 ties. I have only got one left, a clip on. The issue with a lot of the crimes committed by Dennis Nilsen is that the main thing investigators had to go on was his word. As you'll no doubt soon realise, Dennis's word is about as reliable as a chocolate fireguard. Dennis also allegedly slept next to Stephen's corpse for a while before burying it under the floorboards of 195 Melrose Avenue, where it would remain for the next seven and a half months. On August 11, 1979, Dennis retrieved Stephen's body from beneath the floorboards and took it to the garden at the back of his flat. He then proceeded to burn the body on a crudely made bonfire. Stephen's family only found out that he was Dennis Nilsson's first murder victim in January 2006, after Dennis confessed to the police. That means that Stephen's family had been living their lives not knowing what happened to him for almost 30 years. Two months to the day after burning Stephen Holmes's body, Dennis picked his next target. Andrew Ho was a Hong Kong national who was in the UK as a student. He met Dennis on October 11th, 1979, in the Salisbury Pub, located in the heart of central London. It wasn't long after the pair met that an invite was extended to Andrew to have sex back at Melrose Avenue. Once there, Dennis pounced on Andrew and attempted to strangle him. This time though, his intended victim managed to escape and called the police. Dennis was spoken to by the police and even admitted what he had done. However, Andrew opted not to press charges and the incident was dropped. If only the police knew back then they could have arrested a murderer and prevented him from becoming one of the UK's most infamous serial killers. I'm sure that plays on a lot of people's minds to this day. Dennis would strike again two months later, on December 3rd, 1979, but sadly, this time, his target didn't escape. Kenneth Ockenden was a 23-year-old student from Burlington, East Canada, who was on vacation in England. He travelled all over the UK, seeing the sights and taking in the British culture, in the early afternoon of that fateful December day, Kenneth bumped into Dennis Nilsen in the Princess Louise pub, which is located in Holborn, central London. They chattered and drank for a short while, before Dennis offered to be Kenneth's tour guide and show him the sights and sounds of the Big Smoke. To my non-UK listeners, the Big Smoke is a nickname for London. It's due to the heavy levels of pollution back in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Kenneth and Dennis left the pub around 3pm to start the tour, and once finished, they went back to Melrose Avenue. They had some food, and of course, some drinks, but Dennis grew increasingly frustrated at Kenneth's attention being held by a record he was listening to, rather than by him. Taking his guest by surprise, Dennis used the cord of the headphones Kenneth had on and wrapped it tightly around his neck. He'd now successfully killed his second victim and it wasn't long before he placed Kenneth's body under the floorboards as he had Stephen Holmes's. Unlike most of the men Dennis Nilsen killed, Kenneth Ockenden was reported missing by his parents, Kenneth Sr. and Audrey. They offered a £1,000 reward for any information that would lead to them finding their son, and they even spent a month or so in the UK looking for him. Imagine walking the streets of a foreign country 3,000 plus miles away from home and asking the locals if they'd seen your child. I can't begin to imagine how heartbreaking and difficult that must have been. Kenneth was due to fly back to Canada on December 5th, 1979, two days after his life was taken. When he met Dennis Nilsen, he planned to only stop at the pub for a quick drink before heading to a relative's house in the South London town of Carshalton to collect some cash for his flight home. Police officers would later discover some of Kenneth's personal effects in his King's Cross hotel room. Dennis wouldn't strike again for six months, with his next attack coming in May 1980, the year in which Dennis Nilsen conducted most of his killings. Having said that, a lot of his victims remain unidentified, and it's thought that he made up at least three of his alleged victims. It was on May 17th, 1980, that teenager Martin Duffy came into contact with Dennis Nilsson at Euston Railway Station in central London. Originally from Birkenhead, Merseyside, Martin was born in 1964, so he was only 16 when he met Dennis. In 1979, he started studying catering at college, but decided he wanted to leave home the following year. He had a habit of running away from home, but his parents had no idea he was living and sleeping rough at Euston Station. Dennis spotted Martin by chance as he made his way through the station after returning from a union conference in Southport, Merseyside. How bizarre is it that Dennis had just returned to London from the same county that Martin had run away from? He later explained that Martin was the youngest looking boy he had ever seen and he quickly offered the vulnerable youngster accommodation for the night along with a hot meal. Once back at Melrose Avenue, Dennis made Martin some food, allowed him to use the washroom facilities and showed him to his room for the night. When Martin had fallen asleep, Dennis strangled him in the bed before drowning him in the kitchen sink. Reports indicate Dennis would go on to bathe with Martin Duffy's corpse before finally placing it under the floorboards alongside Kenneth Ockenden's on May 19th, 1980. When later recalling this murder, Dennis claimed he only remembered bits and pieces of it. Shortly after killing Martin, Dennis moved the two bodies from beneath the floorboards and placed them inside suitcases and carrier bags. He dissected the two bodies using a set of engraved knives that catering student Martin had on him when he met Dennis. The suitcases and carrier bags were subsequently placed in a shed in the back garden, around which a bespoke wall was built using bricks and old magazines. The bodies of Kenneth Ockenden and Martin Duffy would remain in the locked shed throughout the summer of 1980. Likely due to the fact that the summer of 1980 was a rather cool one in the UK, no complaints were made from the neighbours about unusual smells. The lack of hot weather likely stalled decomposition a little bit. Another reason was that Dennis visited the shed once a day to spray the two bodies with disinfectant. Three months after killing Martin Duffy, Dennis met a 26-year-old Scotsman called William Sutherland, or Billy Sutherland as he was more commonly known. Originally from Scotland's capital city of Edinburgh, Billy had a child from a previous marriage to a lady named Pam, however they were only married for a couple of months before filing for a divorce. As he so often did, Billy left Edinburgh for London in early February 1980, explaining to his parents that he'd return home in around a month's time. Typically he would leave for a month or two or even longer, but this trip was going to be a shorter one. His brother Seaton would later explain that Billy was, in fact, living in London with his three-year-old son and a new girlfriend. Some sources claim that Billy infrequently worked as a male sex worker, but whether or not that's true, I can't be certain. Regardless, he was struggling for work, something which led to a chance meeting with Dennis Nilsson at the job centre where he was working at the time. During their conversation, Dennis suggested meeting up later to have a drink at a local pub close to Piccadilly Circus. After that, the pair had a drink in a second pub before heading back to Melrose Avenue. The details of what happened next are hazy, as Dennis claimed he couldn't recall the precise chain of events due to the volume of alcohol he consumed that night. He remembered being stood above Billy while strangling him to death with either his bare hands or a necktie. He was later quoted as saying, We had a great binge, and I killed Billy Sutherland. As Kenneth Ockenden's parents had, Billy's family reported the disappearance of their son to the police. Sadly, no trace of Billy was found until 1983, when the police dug up the garden of Melrose Avenue. Dennis had initially placed Billy's body under the floorboards as he had his previous victims. Now comes the time for me to mention a victim who Dennis initially confessed to having killed, but later went back on that and said he'd made the whole thing up. There were three murders in that same vein, FYI. In September 1980, Dennis claimed he met a man in the Cricklewood Arms, and, as he had with his previous victims, got chatting with him before inviting him back to Melrose Avenue for a drink. This unidentified male was said to be of Irish origin and was in his late 20s or early 30s. The vague details provided by Dennis were that the man was wearing a suit when they met, and an old one at that, as well as a jacket. Given the scarce details for this alleged murder, was Dennis telling the truth when he said he'd made it up? Or, more disturbingly, was he failing to remember certain murders over others due to the volume of people he killed? The following month, in October 1980, Dennis killed again. This time, it was not make-believe. Whilst drinking in either the Salisbury or Cricklewood Arms, various sources quote either one or the other, Dennis met a male who he described as being someone with non-British heritage. Aged somewhere between 20 and 30, this unidentified man was said to have been from either the Philippines, Thailand or Mexico. You can probably tell already that attempting to accurately research this case was a frustratingly difficult task, let me tell you. One would assume that Dennis killed this 5 foot 10 inch male in the same way as he had his previous murder victims, as his MO was well and truly established by then. To think the nameless man was then probably placed under the floorboards with the history books never knowing his identity, is absolutely horrendous. Dennis's next murder victim was another unidentified male who he met in a similar way to how he met Martin Duffer. Described as being an Englishman in his 20s, this unidentified male was sleeping rough in a shop doorway on Charing Cross Road in central London. Said to have been extremely thin and pale, Dennis clearly knew he could take advantage of the vulnerable young man. Once a taxi had been called, the pair rode back to Melrose Avenue where Dennis would later strangle his guest to death whilst he was asleep. It's an almost exact reenactment of Martin Duffy's murder, this one. When questioned further about this particular murder after his arrest, Dennis recalled how easy it was to take the man's life. He compared it to the old adage of taking candy from a baby. It's unclear which month this murder took place in, but it appears to have been either late October or early November 1980. I say that because at some point in late 1980, Dennis took up his floorboards once more, but this time his intention was to remove the bodies place there rather than burying more. Using kitchen implements, no doubt including Martin Duffy's custom engraved chef's knives, Dennis dismembered their bodies and took them outside to a barren wasteland area just beyond the flat's back garden. He then retrieved the bodies of Stephen Holmes and Kenneth Ockenden from the shed, and placed all seven bodies on a bonfire. Given the fact we celebrate Guy Fawkes Night on November 5th each year in the UK, it makes sense that it was around that time when Dennis burned the bodies. It would have been the perfect cover for him. One article mentioned that whilst he burned the bodies, he also burned some car tyres in an attempt to mask the smell of burning flesh. The next man we know the identity of was attacked by Dennis in November 1980. 29-year-old Douglas Stewart met Dennis Nilsson in the Golden Lion Pub in London's Chinatown area, which is near Soho and Covent Garden. The pair got chatting and shared a few drinks at the pub before leaving together shortly before it closed. Once back at Melrose Avenue the two men continued drinking into the early hours until Douglas eventually explained that he really should go home. He was offered a bed by Dennis but he politely refused opting instead to stay in the chair he was sat in. After passing out Douglas would wake up to the shocking revelation that Dennis was on top of him attempting to tie something around his neck. A brief struggle ensued, but Douglas managed to get Dennis off him before giving him a good thump in the face. He had to first untie his bound legs before making his escape, but luckily he managed it before Dennis came to. As with Andrew Ho, the police were called and paid Dennis a visit, but no charges were pressed against him. Douglas would later say that the police lost interest when one of them heard the word homosexual. They immediately put the situation down as an alcohol fueled lover's quarrel. Once more, if the situation had been treated more seriously, the amount of lives that could have been saved is frightening. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, of course. Another murder took place in either late November or December 1980. An unidentified Englishman in his late 20s was described using the outdated term of hippie, and he allegedly met Dennis in London's West End after all the pubs had closed and sent their respective customers out into the street. After taking him back to Melrose Avenue and killing him, Dennis said he kept his body under the floorboards before later dissecting it and burning the body as he had with all the others. This murder would eventually be confirmed as being a figment of Dennis Nilsen's imagination. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. We now enter 1981. I appreciate how confusing this all probably sounds, so let me take a second to just summarise where we are so far. By the end of 1980, Dennis had murdered six men, including Stephen Holmes, Kenneth Ockenden, Martin Duffy and Billy Sutherland. The other two remain unidentified to this day. He'd also attempted to murder two men, Andrew Ho and Douglas Stewart, whilst fabricating the murders of two other male victims. Dennis Nilsen started 1981 by murdering yet another unidentified male on January 4th. Described by his killer as an 18-year-old, blonde-haired and blue-eyed Scotsman, he was invited back to Melrose Avenue for a drinking contest with his host after meeting him in the Golden Lion pub. Numerous alcoholic drinks were consumed back at the flat before Dennis made his move and killed the teenager. He then dismembered the male a week or so later and placed his body under the floorboards. I read in one article that Dennis pulled a sickie at work on January 12, 1981 and used his day off to dissect the body along with one of his previous victims. A month later, in February 1981, Dennis killed again. This time, his target was a young 20-something Scotsman or Irishman, potentially from Belfast, whom he met in the West End. Once again, Dennis's method of killing was strangulation using a necktie as a ligature. This victim's body was also placed under the floorboards at Melrose Avenue. Time for another allegedly fabricated victim now. In April 1981, Dennis claimed to have met an Englishman he simply referred to as Skinhead Boy. He'd met the 20-year-old in Leicester Square, and the pair bonded over claiming how tough they both were. After extending a challenge to the man, likely that of a drinking contest, they headed back to Melrose Avenue, where Dennis killed him and placed his body under the floorboards. Another detailed lie from self-proclaimed creative psychopath Dennis Nilsson. At some point, he was quoted as saying, End of the day, end of the drink, end of a person. Floorboards back, carpet replaced, and back to work at Denmark Street. I'm not sure which of the many he killed he was referring to, however. The next victim whose identity we know was Malcolm Barlow, a 23-year-old man with epilepsy who was prone to severe epileptic fits. Originally from Sheffield, Malcolm lived with his sister Doreen after the death of their mother. Struggling to cope as her brother's carer due to his behavioural issues, Malcolm's sister eventually was no longer able to cope and he moved down to London in 1981. The story goes that Dennis arrived home on September 17th, 1981, and saw Malcolm slumped up against the wall of his flat. This was perhaps Dennis's manipulative way of attempting to appear as if he wasn't all bad, but he said he phoned for an ambulance after Malcolm told him he was struggling due to his epilepsy. The following day, Malcolm returned to the flat to thank Dennis for being a good Samaritan. Once inside Melrose Avenue, the two men shared a drink, but Malcolm fell unconscious whilst watching TV as a result of an epileptic fit. Frustrated at having what he described as a nuisance in his flat, Dennis proceeded to strangle Malcolm with his bare hands for two to three minutes before placing his body under the kitchen sink. The frequency and volume of Dennis's killings was such that there was no longer any room beneath the floorboards to hide Malcolm's body. As he had the previous year, Dennis had another large bonfire in autumn 1981, upon which were the remaining bodies that he'd hidden under the floorboards at Melrose Avenue. Malcolm Barlow was the last victim to be murdered at Melrose Avenue as Dennis moved to Cranley Garden shortly after the bonfire. He again attempted to mask the smell of burning flesh by placing car tyres on the bonfire. Now living at Cranley Gardens in Muswell Hill, Dennis continued his evil ways by firstly setting his sights on a 19-year-old language student named Paul Nobbs. They met on November 23rd, 1981, Dennis' 36th birthday, at the Golden Lion Pub. Paul was reportedly standing at the bar when Dennis approached him and bought him a drink. The usual pattern followed, with the two men soon heading back to Dennis's new flat at Cranley Gardens. Whilst there, Paul used Dennis's phone to call home and advised his mum that he'd be staying over at a friend's house that evening. The two were said to have had sex, though it's unclear exactly what happened in that regard. After a few more drinks, Paul went to bed and woke up the following morning with a sore throat. Thinking it was probably just caused by the drink, Paul no doubt thought a large glass of water would cure his ailment. It was only when he caught a glimpse of himself in the mirror that he realised his face was bruised and swollen and he had a red mark around his neck about six inches long. Somehow, Paul was allowed to leave the flat and had his neck checked out by a local doctor on the advice of his college tutor. The doctor shocked Paul when he explained that he displayed all the physical signs of having been strangled. Worried that nobody would believe him, he himself couldn't even remember it happening, Paul opted not to contact the police and told anyone who asked about his injuries that a mugger had attacked him. Paul would later come forward to explain what had happened after Dennis was arrested in February 1983. Regarding the attack on Paul, Dennis said, I had a tie around his neck and he was on the bed. I was panicky. I remembered trying to revive him because his heart was still beating and I threw a glass of water over him. Another young man managed to escape from Dennis's clutches on New Year's Eve 1981. Toshimitsu Ozawa was a student from Japan whom Dennis had met presumably in a pub. Originally, Dennis had wanted his neighbours at Cranley Gardens to join him for the evening, but each of them rejected the offer as he appeared severely intoxicated. Once Toshimitsu and Dennis arrived back at the flat, they started drinking cans of lager and talking. All of a sudden, Dennis got up and left the room, returning a few moments later with a necktie outstretched between his hands. Toshimitsu would later say the following about the incident. He had a normal expression on his face, but he was looking at me. He didn't say anything to me. I wasn't unnerved by what he was doing, as I thought he was joking. He put the tie around my neck and started to pull the two ends together. After pushing Dennis away and asking him what the hell he thought he was doing, Dennis continued to silently advance on him, attempting to place the necktie around his neck once more. Toshimitsu used all his strength to kick Dennis away from him, run down the stairs and escape out of the building. The police were told about the incident, but there doesn't appear to have been a follow-up investigation. The scarce amount of information available in relation to Toshimitsu and that attack is shocking. Three months later, in March 1982, Dennis Nilsson successfully killed his 10th official victim. 23-year-old John Howlett was from High Wycombe in Buckinghamshire, and met Dennis in a pub near Leicester Square. Nicknamed John the Guardsman by his killer, John was another of Dennis's victims who was strangled whilst he was sound asleep in his host's guest bed. Bursting into the room and startling his guest, Dennis shouted, it's about time you went, before placing either his hands or a necktie around his throat. As he had with some previous victims, Dennis proceeded to hold John's head underwater in the bath when he discovered the strangulation hadn't been successful. Once John had drowned, Dennis dissected the body into pieces so small that he could flush them down the toilet. Not having access to a large area of wasteland to start a bonfire, Dennis chose this method to dispose of the bodies of his victims. John's bones were thrown away with the rest of the household waste ready for the bin collection day. He said, I decided to dissect the body in the bath and flush the pieces of flesh and organs down the lavatory. This proved to be a slow process, so I decided to boil some of it, including the head. I put all the large bones out with the rubbish and other pieces into the tea chest. In May 1982, Dennis met 21-year-old Carl Stotter at the Black Cat Pub in Camden and invited him back to Cranley Gardens for some drinks. They drank for a while and went to sleep. Carl was openly gay, having come out to his parents at the age of 15, but as far as I'm aware, nothing sexual happened that night between the two men. Carl would later testify at Dennis's trial that he woke up that night to the sight of Dennis Nilsen strangling him. After passing out due to being unable to breathe, Dennis moved him to the bathroom, where he proceeded to shove his head underwater in the bath repeatedly. Carl battled as much as he could and occasionally managed to come up for air, but Dennis always quickly shoved his head back under the water. For reasons not known by anyone other than Dennis, he stopped attempting to drown Carl and let his unconscious body go. When he came to, Carl was told by Dennis that he'd almost choked himself to death after getting his neck caught in the strings of his sleeping bag. Carl didn't initially go to the police, as he believed the whole thing was simply an incredibly vivid nightmare. He even got himself checked out with a doctor who explained his injuries were consistent with being strangled by someone. Sadly, Carl Stotter was found dead in his home on January 1st, 2013. The official cause of death was a diabetic coma and it was believed he had taken his own life. Carl was only 52 years old when he died and without his brave testimony during Dennis Nilsson's trial, the premeditation factor of the murders may never have been believed by the jury. In September 1982, a chance meeting with a fellow Scotsman led to Dennis murdering his 11th confirmed victim. 27-year-old motherwell born Archibald Graham Allen bumped into Dennis Nilsson on Shaftesbury Avenue in London's West End while trying to hail a taxi. Sensing the lost man's vulnerability, Dennis offered to cook him some food back at his flat before showing him how he needed to get where he wanted to go. After making his guest an omelette and allowing him to start eating it, Dennis snuck up behind Graham and strangled him with a ligature. More than likely, it was a necktie. As he had with John Howlett's body, Dennis dissected Graham into small pieces before flushing them down the toilet. The bodies of John Howlett and Graham Allen are the ones that blocked the drains at Cranley Gardens and ultimately led to Dennis Nilsson's arrest. Graham's body could only be identified from dental records. He had a unique jawbone fracture that was identified when the bones were found in Dennis's waistpipe. Dennis explained that if he was in that frame of mind, there's not much that could stop him from killing someone. He said, If there was a bomb blast at the time, nothing would stop me. At the precise moment of the act, I believe I am right in doing the act. The final person killed by Dennis Nilsson was 20-year-old Stephen Sinclair, who was originally from Perth in central Scotland. A troubled young man, Stephen was a frequent narcotic user, with heroin being his drug of choice. He also had a proclivity for self-harming, so his vulnerability fit what Dennis was looking for perfectly. They met on Oxford Street in London's West End, and Dennis bought Stephen some street food. With that gesture getting the ball rolling, Dennis invited Stephen back to Cranley Gardens, and he duly accepted. The pair drank together, and Stephen even injected some heroin too. It's not clear if Dennis did, but based on what we know about him, I'd assume he didn't partake. Once he'd fallen asleep, Stephen was strangled to death by Dennis, who had fashioned a ligature out of a necktie and a piece of string. His justification for this murder was that Stephen was suffering in his daily life, and he felt it was showing him mercy by ending it. Unlike John Howler and Graham Allen, Dennis didn't flush pieces of Stephen's flesh down the toilet. Stephen's arms, upper torso, and head were hidden inside a tea chest, with his legs and lower torso hidden under Dennis's bath. That brings us fully in line with the timeline set out in part one of this two part special. To recap, during this episode, we have discussed the official murders of 12 men, three fabricated murders, and five attempted murders. Of the 12 men officially murdered by Dennis Nilsson, we only know the names of Stephen Holmes. Kenneth Ockenden, Martin Duffy, Billy Sutherland, Malcolm Barlow, John Howlett, Graham Allen, and Stephen Sinclair. The other four men remain unidentified to this day. Despite knowing the identities of eight of the twelve murder victims, when Dennis went to trial at the Old Bailey on October 24, 1983, he was only charged with six counts of murder and two counts of attempted murder. Remember, he had, in reality, attempted to murder at least five people. Andrew Ho, Douglas Stewart, Paul Nobbs, Toshimitsu Ozawa and Carl Stotter. And remember as well, it wasn't until 2006 that Stephen Holmes's body was identified and his family was made aware, so he couldn't have been convicted of that back in 1983. Dennis, perhaps unsurprisingly, pleaded not guilty to all charges placed against him, opting instead to plead guilty to manslaughter due to diminished responsibility. Surviving victims Paul Nobbs, Douglas Stewart and Carl Stotter all testified at the trial, which led to the jury returning with a verdict of guilty on all counts on November 4th, 1983. Dennis Nilsen was handed a life sentence with a minimum term to serve of 25 years before being eligible to apply for parole. He spent the rest of his life in the UK prison system until his death on May 12, 2018 at HMP Full Sutton in East Yorkshire. Two days earlier, he'd been rushed to York Hospital for surgery to repair a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm. Post-surgery complications involving a blood clot ultimately led to his death. Dennis Nilsen's official cause of death was pulmonary embolism and retroperitoneal hemorrhage. For years before his death, Dennis Nilsen had several legal battles with the Home Office relating to the possibility of publishing his autobiography. It remained unpublished until January 2021, when Dennis's old pen pal Mark Austin pieced together an edited version of the book from 6,000 pages of typewritten notes he'd made whilst in prison. The book is titled History of a Drowning Boy, apparently referencing his own near-fatal drowning in 1954 However, I believe that was just a cover story. Based on what we know about the murders, I think there's a far more sinister and cruel meaning behind the book's title. Between September 14th and 16th, 2020, the UK TV network ITV released a three-part drama miniseries based on the life and crimes of Dennis Nilsson. Titled Des, David Tennant was cast in the titular role, and each episode had an audience of between 10 and 11 million viewers. That's roughly 15% of the UK's entire population for each of those three episodes. And that concludes the story of the Muswell Hill murderer, Dennis Nilsson. Thanks again to Kat Luth for suggesting this case. I've got one new review to read out this week. Thank you, Martha Reeveley, for leaving a five-star rating and review on britishmurders.com. Titled Wonderful, Martha's review reads excellent show love your perspective you show great compassion for the victims the cases are interesting and i enjoy the bite-sized episodes as my mother was born in Highley, shropshire may i suggest the case of the kidnapping and murder of leslie whittle your lovely stewart i've added that case list to my episode list martha thank you for the suggestion and thank you again for the review Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify and voicemail messages at BritishMurders.com. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on my website. Please continue emailing your case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me on social media. I will get round to all of them. A little bit of a backlog at the minute, but please keep them coming in. You'll not only get the episode covered if you do suggest it, but you'll also get a cheeky shout-out. But that's it for now. That's it for the Season 5 special. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, cheerio!